Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. I am here today with Jeff Finn, who in his current role is the CEO of Realnex. He'll talk about what that is. But I know Jeff as an entrepreneur, a technology pioneer, a branding expert, a global commercial real estate leader. He's my former boss when I was working at NEI Global. Jeff is a friend and a mentor. He's a dedicated father, loving husband, and a devoted son, all wrapped into one. Thanks for being here, Jeff. It's a pleasure, Hiam. Thank you for uh, reading my mother's final words to <laughs> start that commercial for you. I appreciate that. Well, she did a great job. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. So I'll review some of the takeaways that we're going to get into and, and see where else this conversation goes. But uh, I mentioned you're a branding expert, a technology pioneer, and a global real estate leader. And how those three things, branding, technology, and globalization, come into play, came into play in your life and still come into play in your life. Uh, I'm curious, I'd like to get a history lesson of com- the commercial real estate world and the role that you played uh, with NAI. And we'll dive into some takeaways about what it means to be a pioneer. That's a lot of ground. It's a lot of ground, but you're the kind of guy that can Let's do it. cover that. Uh, before we jump into all that, spend a few minutes talking about who you are. Tell us what you do. As you mentioned, uh, uh, my background was uh, as a founding member of the team, uh, a family company that founded uh, NAI Global. It was New America Network at the time. I uh, joined the company uh, basically as a college intern when it started and then uh, evolved through the ranks to become CEO of the company. In the early days, I took out the garbage and ran cables and uh, did everything from that you'd expect in a growing company emerging uh, in a in a small office in a small town. It gave you the proper training. It got the proper training. And then I got on the road with uh, uh, opportunities to help develop the organization and uh, grew to the, uh, the the realization that as you mentioned, there were a few things that were really critical for the, the growth of it in that branding, technology, and globalization we'll get back to mm-hmm. later. But, you know, so it was a long experience growing up in the brokerage industry and uh, had a vision when I joined the company of technology really being able to change what was a, a very archaic industry at the, at the time. And so we used technology well inside of NAI uh, over time and uh, realized later that there was even a bigger opportunity within the commercial real estate industry to not just do it for one company, but now with Realnext to provide technology solutions to the the broader marketplace. So after building NAI from uh, a national referral network to a global pioneer in the the network uh, model of real estate services, sold NAI in 2011 and in 2000. 
uh, through 2012, ran the company, but then transitioned out in 2013 and hooked up with a group of partners to create Realnex, which has a vision to solve uh, what is a, a void in the commercial real estate industry to be able to adopt and implement technology as a holistic solution to provide greater efficiency and liquidity in the marketplace. So I feel like if I'm in commercial real estate, I kind of know what you just said as it relates to Realnext being a holistic solution and providing liquidity. But for someone who's not in commercial real estate, what exactly does that mean? Let me just, let me tee it up also. So Realnext, I'm a commercial real estate broker. I use the Realnext technology and platform to carry out my tasks and my workflow, things like um, managing clients, things like marketing property, things like listing property for other brokers to find it, things like doing financial analysis to understand what the values are. So those are just some of the everyday things that I use your software for in my day-to-day. But what you, what you talked about, liquidity in the marketplace, what does that mean exactly in the context well, let me, of this? I'll step back. So okay. when... Concurrent with uh, our sale of NAI, uh, Mark Kingston was the CEO of uh, Argus Software, which is the leading valuation tool for commercial real estate assets. It helps to underwrite real estate, and banks and financial institutions have made that the global standard it, uh, over over time. They sold the company to uh, uh, Altus Group in Canada. We sold NAI to C3 uh, Capital. And both were free agents in the beginning of 2013 and began to look at the industry landscape with a few other partners and saw that for a commercial real estate company to do what they do, there were a tremendous number of manual processes and some technology solutions that solved certain of the things that they did in their day-to-day life. But they were all siloed solutions. So there was a CRM solution that might help you manage your relationships with people and understand who was buying what, who was a tenant where, who owned which buildings, what was the profile so any, of any, Anybody in sales or business understands what a CRM, a client relationship manager is. So if I'm an accountant and I'm, I'm, I've got a sales team, they're using the CRM or any really industry. I know there's a HVAC company here that's using Salesforce very nicely. So that's one thing. So that's not different for real estate. It's not different for real estate, except that there hadn't been um, the the nuance to commercial real estate is that it's not like selling a widget. The a commercial real estate company has to sell themselves to basically get the widget, and then they have to sell the widget. So there's this unusual dynamic in commercial real estate to get the listing right. You have to sell yes, okay. to a prospect to first understand that the. Um, the, the owner of a building wants to hire you to sell their building. So the first sale is to get hired, and then the second sale is to actually sell the property. So okay. there's not a, So a in that of, example, there's the siloed, I'm using one thing to sell myself and then another thing to, to underwrite and sell the property. And your software is putting all that together. It's putting all of that together, and it, it's doing it in a very sophisticated and seamless way. So not only do you have the ability to sell yourself and and know who your best prospects are and get hired, but then to provide the service delivery to be able to consistently and efficiently manage the process to compress cycle times to sell property more efficiently. So it's how do you underwrite that property? How do you do the financial analysis? How do you package it? How do you present it? How do you then reach out to a highly targeted market? How do you get all of those prospects back into uh, what we call a private and secure deal room to see what all of the 
information that you need to make a decision and then to be able to make bids on the property and, and underwrite and to, to affect a transaction. We even have things like 3D modeling and rendering to visualize what space could be that doesn't exist yet. So if a new project is coming to market, uh, it's hard for people to visualize and, and understand what might be there, whether it's a new building or even space within a building. And that's a hard thing to sell. So you're able to use our technology to conceptualize what could be and then uh, make it a reality. And as far as this, the efficiency and the, the, the marketplace, it was sort of a, it was a vision back at the NAI days and it continues here is that we wanted to enable a buyer or seller to trade real estate like you could trade stock or a bond. And everyone has said over time that it's different. Real estate's different, but bonds are pretty complicated. Stocks are pretty complicated, but the industry's figured out in the financial markets how to package them and make them very, very liquid and efficient to trade. And we're seeing a migration to that. That's what you mean by liquidity. That's what I mean by liquidity. Okay. By having great transparency of information and workflow and processes and connectivity in a marketplace, you're able to make the market more efficient more liquid, more dynamic. So it's pretty clear you have your hands full and it's also pretty clear that you're a person of capacity and depth. And we'll get into more about Realnex and more about NAI and how they intersect in your life. This show is called Takeaways and it's about my takeaways from the people that have influenced me. Uh, you're certainly one of those people you, you were when we worked together and you continue to be and I wanted to jump in and ask you what one thing or event or person in your life has defined or shaped you the most. The the, the obvious is, uh, the answer is obvious to me. There's been many people that have shaped and touched and, and uh, informed me over time, but clearly my father was the most significant influence in my life and direction uh, of where I would you know take my life, take my business career, and how I would you know be a better person, the best person I could be and the, the best uh, in, in business that I could be. So, uh, you know, in many ways, I can talk you know, for hours about that, who he is and what he's done and what he's accomplished, but a true pioneer in the, the industry. And, uh, you know, he has been a, a great uh, inspiration in my life. So I do have a specific question about, you know, I'll frame him as, as the founder, Gerald Finn, because I want to um, more about how he founded, why he founded uh, New America Network that eventually became NAI. But give an example. You, you, interestingly, you said that he influenced you, and it's easy for me to assume and understand how he did that in business as a, uh, for you as a professional. But what was an example of how he modeled for you how to be a better person, like you said? He had a uh, and has. He's, he's uh, still still active today. He has uh, an uncanny ability to uh, to see opportunity where others see problems. And he always talked about that dichotomy where most people see problems. Is, there's a hidden opportunity, and that was sort of his magic and one of his uh, sort of uh, bits of of wisdom. And he was he he is eternally optimistic, committed, dedicated, and just never gives up to the point of where people thought he had crazy ideas, he was able to prove them wrong and make those crazy ideas reality. So uh, persistence, commitment, being able to uh, be visionary in what he saw and what he did, but really it was that that crisp uh, part of creating opportunities where others saw problems. That was sort of a, a, a 
magical gift that he had or has. Is that the same as being visionary, identifying the opportunity, or is there a nuanced difference in that? Well, I think there's a nuanced difference in the um, visionary is, is seeing uh, what others don't see and an understanding a new reality of what could be. His background was as a developer, and before that it was as a single-family ham- home builder. He started in you know, out of the Korean War. He came home from the Army and uh, started to work in retail and hated it and realized that he needed to do something different. So he was able to buy a lot build a house and sell it. Then he was able to buy another lot, build a house and sell it. And then he was able to build communities. And he saw his the first vision that sort of visionary was a concept of the planned unit development. He pioneered that. He created the law that enabled the zoning that affected what is now commonly uh, implemented across the country, the planned unit development, where you had residential, commercial, uh, retail of, of all type and mix inside of a of a park where it used to be very segmented in zoning he created the the zoning ordinance that allowed that so he was building thousands of units and and uh, built communities up and down the east coast and sold his company several times to different large development companies and kept rebuilding and doing it again so the vision of the the uh, is different than the opportunity the op- you know sometimes the problem is okay mm-hmm. how do you get the property zoned and they're You've got something that's not worth a lot if it's zoned one way. Well, the opportunity is let's get it changed into this BUD zoning or mm-hmm. multifamily or whatever it is. So problem and opportunity, I think, are are a little bit more focused on the specific where vision is some magic that you've got to be able to, to see into the future and understand what, what could be and, and then to actually make it happen. And how did the persistence part play into that? The... Uh, as an entrepreneur, things don't happen overnight. Uh, you, you need to really have commitment and dedication. You have Most people are very conservative by nature. Most people don't believe in things can, that can be created out of thin air, and, and there's a future that's different than a, a current reality. So you have lots of people all the time in every type of endeavor saying you can't do that. It's just impossible. And to not listen to that, to be able to keep your head down, keep focused and believe in yourself, believe in your dream and to just continue on until you've realized the, uh, the vision. That's the, the persistence. You just have to, you have to do it. Do you feel like for you, cause a lot of what you're describing, we'll get into, uh, and hopefully it'll show up that you have a lot of these characteristics. Do you feel like those were, in your DNA, or this is something that you developed by observing what your father modeled? It's hard to say. I didn't know a different way. Um, it's interesting. My son's the same way now, and he sort of points to both of us, saying that that's a, he, how he grew up, so that's what was what he expected to do, he wanted to do. He didn't want to ever go to work for someone, and never has. He's been an entrepreneur since he graduated from, from school, and uh, uh, I, I think it's it's 
And he's doing like seriously cutting edge stuff. He's right doing now. some digital media marketing at the, the top of the, and the he's market, inventing it as he goes too. Just like he's become an expert, and so he's a guru sought after and brought in for, for clients across the country and around the world actually to help help them with their digital media marketing strategies. He had no interest in commercial real estate. We tried to bring him in. He helped us very early. You know, helped us set up our Facebook and LinkedIn and social media, and he just was so frustrated with how challenged we were as an industry to to implement and take advantage of what were obvious tools for him and uh, uh so he saw, he just said i'll i can do this for for a lot of companies that are much more dynamic and, and forward thinking than you know, commercial real estate but uh, that, i think that's coming around i think commercial real estate's come a long way and is beginning to realize how it can take advantage of tools and one of the things i've said often and is a little bit of a you know, transition or uh, transgression but the Commercial industry has always been thrown uh, a, a, a message that it's been a laggard of a technology adoption, and it has. But it, the, the fact that it's uh, been slow to adopt, in my view, is because the tools have been slow to come to provide the value that is needed by the industry for the industry to be more efficient. And as in my history, as we built tools that were effective, they were rapidly implemented and highly desired. So it wasn't that we don't want technology. It was that we only want technology that's going to make us more productive. And I, I think that there's been a lot of uh, a lot of time wasted on technology that, that hasn't made people more productive. We could stay here for a bit, but I do still want to circle back and then follow the arc of, of NAI. Uh, it's just interesting what you said and at NAI, you guys developed a tool called RealTrack, which was, from hearing you speak about it before, it's uh, NAI, the enterprise, wanted a way to uh, organize information within the network, uh, wanted a way to have customers interact and engage with the network so that if they needed some real estate, they can go through this technology and, and get it. I feel like typically technology is developed by the quote unquote managers who need adoption to manage the, the business as opposed to flipping it around. Like in the, in the case of commercial real estate, the sales agents building it for them so that they can make money and then having the, uh, the ancillary benefit be okay. Now we have the management tools that we need on the back end instead of on the front end. You're exactly right. So the um, the vision of RealTrack was uh, to do what I talked about earlier to to give a portal for a customer to be able to come in to us and tell us that they wanted to buy something here, sell something there, get a, a bird's eye view of their portfolio globally. And, and whose idea was, to, was real track? That was my idea. Okay. So we had at the, time, and at the time, were you a salesperson or were you in the home office running the mothership? Uh, I always wore every hat that there was. So I was probably, you know, called director of corporate development or something like that at the time. And I was doing, wearing a marketing hat, wearing a business development hat, recognized that, okay, we had a hundred offices around the country. It, and at the time, sort of the business model was, let's go list a big plant and try to sell it. 
And that was interesting. But the, the value proposition of having 100 offices was not to be able to list for one company, one plant, and be able to sell it. But it was to be able to handle hundreds of projects for clients across a, a large and diverse portfolio. One of the – Sorry, what year was this? Uh, this was in 1987. So around 1987, 1986, so, 87, we, we had pioneered the development of a DOS-based system. Well, it was a mini-computer-based system that did the original version of uh, allowing for the management of portfolio-level activity across the platform. We moved it to a PC environment as that evolved, and you heard modems crashing left and right trying to connect people and make data flow. It, so it didn't work as at hoped with that. When Windows came, it, it was a little bit better. But in 93, when the Internet came out, we were right on it. So we had set the stage through all this So you guys were at we this for done. five years or so. Yeah, so people so – we were – you know overnight success after five years of working right. at it, looking at different ways and trying to figure out how to make it happen. When the inter- internet came, we, we built RealTrack, and it was, uh, it was tremendously valuable. It, it allowed us to win clients like the United States Postal Service, Pepsi, Hertz, International Paper, Alcoa, you know, the, uh, Air Products. It's funny. We, we, if you looked at the early list of clients that we had as a company, it was Alcoa, Air Products, and Airborne. Uh, and Alco standards. So we never got out of the A's. Our business development strategy was sort of just start at A and then go from there. So we had all of these A companies. And Is that true and, or are you was, just That's kidding? absolutely okay. true. Okay, so, so you open the phone book and you started the A's and you didn't have to go much further because you were so effective. So we got busy with those, those first few and, and began to, to run a lot of business. And we had a, a model that enabled them. So it was step back. So first it was looked at as how do you provide this client service that enables this efficient uh, transaction management capability? The other part that it, it did and, and we saw was there was this perception that a network couldn't be as good as a company because a company, in theory, has a boss and you have a CEO and you have vice presidents and you have branch managers and you have all this up and down hierarchy of command and control and, and management. The network model, which NA, New American Network was and NAI evolved was a, what we called a managed network. So we came up with an, another concept that we, we pioneered was this concept of the managed network where you're able to manage people, whether they work for a company or they work with you in collaboration, if you have the right tools and right systems and right processes in place. So technology enabled those systems and processes to be placed so that in place so that we could consistently deliver service across, across a very large and diverse global portfolio. And so it, it did. It first helped us to provide a tool for clients. It helped us to provide a better service. It did what you said later, which was maybe the big brother – the concern about it, it helped us to monitor activity and manage the, the business to get results and, and uh, uh, understand what was happening. But where it really began to sing was the, by having these tools in place, it enabled all of our agents to win more business than they could ever win before. So without technology, they were not able to compete with RealTrack and the platform that we built. They were able to compete at the top of the market. You know, there's a pattern that's coming up here with every layer that you talk about where your father changed the rules, essentially, with the planned community 
He didn't just fight to get a lot zoned. He changed the law. You guys developed this technology and you changed the rules for the agents. They weren't just going with their typical uh, pitch book. It was, we have something that nobody else has. We've changed the rules. Exactly. And we're effective in winning business. So let's use that as a segue to go back to the founding of New America Network and what the heck was going on what with was he thinking? your dad when he was so imagining I, this thing? That was, it was 1978. There's a specific incident. I mean, it didn't just evolve. He was, a, he had, as I mentioned, he had been a developer. He 1978? Sold, 1978. He, okay. He, he, that's when the concept was born. I would say that the company was really born in 1980. He had uh, sold his company. He first sold his company to American Standard, he, uh, which was the, the plumbing business. He tells the story in a much funnier way than I do. So he sold a, a development company to American Standard. They make the toilets. He sold his next company to CertainTeed. They made the underground plumbing and piping. And he said, if I ever sell a company again, I'm going to be really deep and I can't, can't go much deeper. So he wanted to stop at that. So he retired. He had you know, done what he wanted to do, and he was out consulting. And, and, and uh, in his consulting, he started to speak at different conferences, and he spoke at a NACOR conference. NACOR doesn't exist anymore today, but it's now part of what has become Cornet, which was the leading uh, corporate real estate association in the industry at, at NACOR was at So the if time. I'm a major corporation, I'm a member of Cornet, and this is where I go for my real estate solutions? It, well, it's where you go for your real estate education, best practices, and a peer group of others like you that are managing the largest real estate portfolios in the world. Like Pepsi? Like Pepsi. Okay. And uh, at that time, he, so he was speaking on a panel about, or he, he was speaking, uh, the concept of brokerage was the topic. And he talked about the values and the benefits for corporate real estate executives to use brokers in how they do their business and how they execute transactions and great value. Commercial real estate is much more professional today than it was then, but the uh, even even then there was a professional industry that was evolving and growing and emerging. But he got blasted off the, the panel by the real estate director from Ford Motor Company who said, you have no idea what you're talking about. The real estate industry is you know, just rampant with unethical, unqualified people that will rob, steal, cheat, and they don't work together. They they don't work well for big companies. He, you know, anything bad he could say, he sort mm-hmm. of stood up in the audience and just you know said it's all wrong. And so he proudly said that yeah, you know, Ford Motor Company, we have two hundred people that work for our real estate department, and we manage all of our dealerships and all of our properties across the country. And so my dad light bulb went off and said, it's ridiculous for a company like Ford to have 200 people. You know, that's a lot of money. To they're have not, real, they're estate not real estate experts. They're not real estate experts sitting in Dearborn or wherever they're sitting and trying to figure out how they're going to buy a property in Tampa and Tulsa and dispose of it timely. And the fact that they had this perception of lack of quality led to the realization that if you could create an organization that stood for quality and the ability to deliver service effectively and actually do it and raise the professionalism, raise the bar, provide a high level of service, Ford could hire that company and get rid of 200 people that could then do something more productive. And so that was really the the birth of New American Network. So another example of how this was a problem for him. He's on a panel. He's 
speaking his mind and his heart and someone from Ford, not just some schlemiel at, at some company, this guy stands up and rails him mm. and out of this problem for your dad comes an opportunity. Big opportunity. A big opportunity that said never could happen. And it was years of, you know, the first decade. And it was, we were called a concept. I mean, even when Wait, we were... So that, the idea was 1978. And then the idea how, was 1978. That we signed the first member to NAI in 1980. But you had nothing. What do you mean you signed so, the first so member? The, so what did you do next? Story. So it made it sound really easy. He went to uh, a real estate brokerage firm in Orlando. Fern Creek Properties is the name of the company in Orlando. He, he had done some development down there, knew the, the people. He said... Jay, Tom, I'm going, to, I'm going to build this company called New American Network. We're going to build you know, great companies like yours, bring them together, and create a platform for you to do business. And you're going to pay us a lot of money to, to do that, and everything is going to be great. And they wrote him a check, signed a contract, and so it was a network of one. And he said, that's pretty easy. And then it got hard. And then we went out <laughs> to, to build. And so it, but it was still a concept. It was still thought of as a concept. And just were you there at the time, or were you in college? I, where, where were I you? was there uh, in college, but I worked through summer every year during the those first those formative years of the okay. company. So that was my so internship. Florida, so Orlando was the first. Orlando was the first. Then uh, we, we generally built out New Jersey and Florida, and up and down the East Coast. So within the first year, how many companies uh, were there? Uh, maybe. 20 or so in the first year. And I think by the time I was out of college in 84, there were 100 companies fairly uh, fairly broadly uh, spread across the, the country. So it spread pretty quickly. But it spread to firms that were not the highest caliber. So the first companies, I, I would say, it bought for two reasons. One, it was defensively because one, one of the owners told me later, he said, you know, I didn't think it was going to work, but I didn't want anyone else to have it. So I signed the contract and got the license and uh, became the first member. This was in, in New Jersey. But over, over when I started to do business development, one of the great joys and, and, and opportunities I had was to do a road trip, uh, sort of my first year out in, in the early 80s into Ohio. And we signed a contract at that time with the, the largest brokerage firm in Cleveland that had the largest number of SIOR designations. You're an SIOR now. SIOR is the gold standard designation for quality as far as it was SIR at the time, Society of Industrial Realtors. So it was sort of the pioneer uh, flagship companies in industrial real estate. There's another association of similar quality for investment real estate. It's called CCIM, the Certified Commercial Investment Member. And the uh, those organizations or associations have nice fraternities. They're not businesses, but they know each other and they regard each other well. So when we were able to get the Craig and Lang Free and Smythe was the name of the company in Cleveland. Sounds like a law firm. It's very much like a law firm, a partnership. They were high-powered, biggest, best, and they said, we're in. Now get this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. And it was a tipping point. So, so was that like the moment of arrival? That was the moment of differentiation from being what some might have said were dots on the map to being the foundation for the highest caliber network of commercial real estate professionals in the world. So what it's, you said you signed the first one and then it got hard, but it doesn't sound like it got hard. In a year, you had 20 companies and then four years later, you had 100 companies. That doesn't sound like it was very hard at all. Well, it, it, the it, um, was it just not to your standard? It, a couple things were were hard about it. It's it hard to 
make money. You're in business to make money. So it's easy if my dad was going to fund the company and grow it, which he did. And one of the things that he, you know, he was able to do and made it different and made, what really made NAI now stand out was that it was owned by and built by an entrepreneur and a company. It wasn't a, a network as others have been formed where they were really and still are uh, co-ops or associations or a group of firms that get together and hire a managing director to do the bidding of the network to say, run a conference, help market, do some things. It, it, there was no, there's, there's a lack of initiative and uh, uh, business motivation for the actual company in the middle of it to have a profit and to, to be a business, to grow, take risks and, and, and make something happen. So, NAI, by a standard of saying you're a network in, in the sense that you might look at it, say you have 100 firms around the country that are all have signed a contract is great, but you have overhead and you, you know, we have a team of people mm-hmm. that were building it. And the, the real value in the organization was not just to have the dots on the map, so to speak, but to have it dynamically working to have business flowing across it to help those members grow to help them be more competitive in their markets and at that it was early days while there was coverage that part worked that was hard work getting the catalyst to help them dynamically interact do business together and to then enable the the uh, the pursuit of those large global accounts that took a lot of time and, and energy and you know maybe maybe looking back it wasn't so long and now, you know, seeing how it, what it takes to build a business, it's not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. But mm-hmm. we, we never thought it happened fast enough and, and, and felt that we were maybe that's a little one, bit – Maybe that's one takeaway there from, from this. When was the first deal that was transferred either from the network to one of the member offices or from one of the member offices to another member office? Yes, some good questions. It's bringing back – bringing down the history uh, lane, the uh, memory lane through the history book. The um, – First deal, I probably I don't know so well, but I, I I know the most significant deals that were sort of catalysts that moved the organization sort of from benchmarks of of what happened uh, quickly. We we had uh, the good fortune of in the time that we were evolving to have one of our brokers who we had done a sales meeting with and told him that he's now part of a great network and he can and do some business outside of his market. This is out of Nashville, a broker in Nashville. He had just done a, a retail uh, shopping center lease with the, with the company and he said that uh, I've got a company that could be really interested in this because they're expanding pretty rapidly. And so we said, great, let, let's introduce them to your other network members and see if we can do some business together. So while it had to be all done confidentially, we we did you know, the, all the first Sam's Clubs across the country. That we was the retailer? Hundreds of, of uh, not we didn't do hundreds, but as they were doing hundreds of Walmarts, we did dozens of them. We didn't do all of their work, mm-hmm. but we did a lot of their, their work in the day. So that and, and, and as those opportunities began to go in from new market to new market, all of a sudden, all the brokers in those markets wanted to become part of this organization that was doing that, that business. So that was on the sort of the multi-market side. The other was that we had a, a team of people that were doing in investment sales. Sorry, what year was the Sam's Club thing? That was through the mid 
80. So I would call it 80, okay. two, three, four, five, six, you know, and sort of it just mm-hmm. it sort of is in that range. So very early days for the, the growth of, of Walmart and, and Sam's Club as far as a, their national prominence. We, we ended up with the, the listing on a Days Inn in Kissimmee, Florida. So back to Orlando, where our first member was. We were able to get a, a $20 million hotel, which at that time was a pretty big ticket. It's pretty big now, too. to a big uh, investment fund out of New York. So that sort of gave us some notoriety and profile on the, uh, on the investment and sales side. You, and that the, was in the same, that early 80s. The window. Florida member was able to get that because they were a part of a national network? Exactly. So they were able, they identified the opportunity. They were able to bring in our corporate investment specialist team up together, and we were able to bring in the investment, uh, the investor out of New York that ended up buying the property. I feel like hearing this story that the point where it becomes, you know, I'm creating something from nothing, which is sort of an intangible, you're going to be a part of a network, you can compete for different business, and you can work together. That's sort of really intangible from the from the members perspective, where it becomes tangible is when that first deal or those flurry of deals start coming. And when you look at the timeline, it's pretty quick. Yeah, I guess so. Like so you know, it, but it didn't feel like it didn't that, feel like it, it feel like which it, is this is a t- I wasn't intending on this, but it was an, it's an interesting takeaway for any entrepreneur or anybody working on a project where it never feels like it's going fast enough when you're doing it. And you did you looking back, did you know, you know, the point of arrival? Did you know when you would sign that Cleveland office? Oh, my God, if we get this, this whole thing's going to tip. I did. You knew my, that. Okay. My dad did. Did the rest of the world? No. There were still people that didn't believe. I mean, they said, you know, there, there's Caldwell Banker at the time, Cushman and Wakefield, the uh, Grubb and Ellis, you had these other large firms, and that was where all the, the business was going to go, that the the, net, the independent firms weren't going to have a, a good result at the end of the day, and you couldn't build a platform that could make them as productive as possible. So we saw it. We, we made it happen, but not everyone believed it that that could be a reality. It's another one of the, the funny stories in that, in that era was we, we were recruiting a, and I, I know he's, he's, he comes up later in the discussion. We were re- recruiting a guy that uh, would become one of our uh, all-stars and, and, and critical uh, team members of the organization. And in the recruiting uh, David Blanchard, he was invited to attend one of our advisory board meetings. And it was in Seattle uh, and he he said, you know, it sounds all interesting. I don't really understand how it works, but maybe maybe I'd be interested in coming to work for you guys. So my dad that took him down to a payphone. Before cell phones, they had payphones. He looked in the you know, back into the the alphabet and uh, saw a sign across the street for Airborne Express. And again, part of the A story called up, and they were on the street cold calling Bernie Baber, who was a real estate director of Airborne Express. And they said, you know, Bernie, we've, uh, we're, uh, David and I are in town. We, we've got this great concept. We know you guys are expanding rapidly. We can help you with all of your real estate. Bernie was pretty demanding and gruff. He said, great, I just fired Brand X. Come on over. I want to talk to you. And he came in that afternoon, had a meeting. We did hundreds of locations for, for Airborne out of that so we sort of and then and david became an all-star rock star within was that, the industry was and, that and the, the organization the job interview 
That was Did your dad take him to the phone booth to see how he would call? No, he call? took him to the, the phone booth and he went to the meeting to demonstrate to him. That was more the sales pitch ah. to recruit him. So we weren't interviewing him as much as saying we knew we wanted him. We wanted to prove to you how easy this is to make it work and show you how and you can become. And dumb luck, he just fired Brand X and he, was, was willing perfect, to take the meeting. Perfect timing. What would have happened if he didn't just fire Brandon? I think David would come <laughs> with us anyway. We would have figured out a way. It was, yeah. He's a special person. So you brought him up. Spend a little time talk about David Blanchard. David's a, one of those unique individuals in the world, a sort of a magical person that um, is as inspiring as they come. And he just has a, an ability to see deep inside people, understand who they are, what they're thinking, and... Uh, has a philosophy of service that is unparalleled. So he'll do whatever he can and, and will uh, go way above and beyond to make sure that he's giving more than he's getting. And by giving as much as he gives, the world opens up to him in just in, in many different ways. You, you, you can't really describe it until you, you, you really have to, to experience it. Someone like David Blanchard, when you said that he has the ability to look deep inside somebody... I have an example of how that shows up. I remember we were at a real estate conference, thousands of people walking by, we're at the NAI booth, and literally within seconds of him first meeting somebody, this is David Blanchard, this is so-and-so, he and that person had enough of a connection to where David could place both of his open hands on that person's face, males, I mean, this is like a male-to-male kind of a thing. And not get slapped. And not get, and the person, <laughs> and the person just feels great back. about it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he's really a, one of those special people in the world. So he he was recruited. What year was that roughly? I believe it was eighty seven, eighty six, eighty seven. That 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 time frame. And Another part of that, that tipping point era, where again these all the stars were aligned. We had sort of built the foundation, worked really hard for. Seven years to get the, the foundation built, all, all of a sudden technology, all of a sudden a different quality of membership uh, was coming in. And not only did he help and represent Airborne, but he was largely responsible. Well, we had five of – not of him, five people in that role of a regional director at the time. So he was a Western regional director for us. He merged to become executive vice president of the company and leader. But he built the West for us really and represented Airborne. At the time, so so you guys were sort of on the east coast, and he then took over the west coast. Yep, and then we infilled across the country with with other regional directors over time. And around 1987, you talked about uh, the which was a pretty rough time, if you remember the if uh, the banking crisis that came up uh, more recently. That was the, the last one before that. That were the, so in our evolution, that was the first of what were I guess you know four different cyclical dips in, in the market that were pretty tough. So how was that significant for the growth of the company? We always found it, it, it to be interesting that the uh, in, in, in difficult times, entrepreneurial companies look for change. They look for something different. How am I going to get through this cycle? What, what can I do different? What can I do better? So we actually found that to be a time of significant growth and galvanizing for the organization to come together where they said, okay, you know, things that I was doing aren't working so well. Maybe this new America things could be more valuable to me. So new members joined, they came in and others that were part of it uh, more passively became much more active because they realized that I, I'm not doing any business here in 
Tulsa, maybe I can do some business in Oklahoma City or whatever it was. And I sort of, the, they start to play in a bigger pond. So that's an interesting takeaway, but goes back to the, the way you described the problems your dad. and opportunities. Exactly, yep. exactly. Um, and at this time, you talked once about like one of the biggest conflicts around technology with your organization was when the fax machine came out. It's a funny story. So the the, um, the fax machine it was an old technology that was sort of reinvented in and it came back to the market pretty suffi- uh, sufficiently with new uh, capabilities in maybe late 70s, early 80s, but not everybody had them. They weren't widespread, weren't pervasive, but the uh, in maybe 1983 or four, we realized that connectivity and communication among a, a national organization was very important and we didn't have a great way to do it the sending packages overnight was not as easy and was very expensive so package you know paper and you know mail took a long time and the fact sped everything up to be instantaneous so we had an advisory board meeting and it was it was actually a blizzard in Boston, and it became known in NAI as the Boston Massacre because <laughs> he had this advisory board, which were twelve of the most sophisticated uh, owners of brokerage companies across the country, and and uh, that was my dad. He took the the arrows in this one here. He, he came to the meeting and said, "I've got a great idea. You know, we've we've been using it. I actually used it a long time ago, but now it's really cheap and widely available." Everyone in New America at the time, everyone needs to get a fax machine. And that way we can all share information, share leads, do deals, and, and, and uh, be more effective. And it was an open revolt where one of the, the guys got up and started banging the table and said, no one's going to tell me how to run my business and what I need to do and how I need to do it. And so wouldn't it, even hear the merits of the idea. Wouldn't he just went red with the, the idea of somebody trying to tell him what to do. And that was sort of our early days of uh, recognizing that not everyone was open to technology, but guess what? They adopted the fax machine, and they realized, oh, that's pretty good. We, we can do business better. So our, our ideas were, were actually uh, leading edge, and not bleeding edge, but leading edge to the point of helping people be, be more productive. And uh, it, it was not dissimilar with, with our, our technology initiatives later. There was always sort of an open revolt, and then adoption, implementation, and success. You know, we take for granted, I bring it up because we take for granted in this day and age, something like the fax machine and how transformative it was to doing business. When I got into commercial real estate, mid 2000s, one of my early mentors, Dean Wilmore, would tell us literally how the fax machine changed the way that commercial real estate agents, and I presume all real estate agents do business. And like you talked about, even within a city, if I have to present an offer, I have to, I had to physically back then, or they had to physically yeah. back then, print it out, prepare it, and go present it in person, which is two, three, four hours, hours maybe yeah. five with prep and and you know cool you know setup time and cool down time. Whereas then it was I'm standing by the fax machine for 45 minutes waiting for the sign the, the contract, the paper to come back. through to see what the offer is. Yeah. Uh, that it's just so that piece is interesting, and as we talk, we'll talk more about the current technology and. Things like you, uh, adoption and, and people resisting how different it is and, and how we take for granted you know, it's the payphone and the yeah, fax machine right. and where we are today with things. It's incredible, the, the world we live in. Let's jump in now and go deeper into this discussion about 
uh, so I feel like we're in the first 10 years of the continuum of, of NAI. Uh, you told me once that NAI won in the network space because it became a managed network, but it was committed to three things. It was to be about brand, technology, and globalization. Absolutely. So um, that was our strategic plan of 1997. That's when I... I um I had just become president and was running the company and, and recognized this crossroads that we were at. We could have easily blown up at the time. There, there was a, a lot of challenge to what the value proposition is, how does it work. The other large companies in the more institutional companies were becoming more and more prominent, more and more dominant. They were not just in the US, they are now merging and becoming global behemoths. And I recognize that all the demands that were being placed on us were unrealistic. We can't do as a, a company what all of the members wanted us to do, unless we aligned around these three core pieces of the puzzle. One was the, the industry thought we were inconsistent, that they thought a network model was inconsistent and that it couldn't be consistent. Look, they couldn't even use the network mark consistently. So the idea of branding became vital. So if, you, if we can show that we can align around what we look like, we have a chance of, of helping the industry understand that we can actually perform. And brand is much broader than that, but this, the, mm. more, the visual aspect of it was a common identity and we can talk we'll talk a lot more but the other the other piece is globalization clearly our customers were globalizing and if we remained a national organization we would be preempted because their needs were be would be far beyond what we could service and deliver and the the third piece was technology recognizing that there's no way to deliver services for the type of clients that we want to go after unless we can do it as efficiently as, as possible. And we got hammered on all three. So we came to, you know, I, I presented this at a, a board meeting and again, open revolt, you know, all of our money should be spent in the U S that's where all of our members are. That's, you know, like, so that's people thinking about today, where are we today? So we mm-hmm. spend money where you are and, and, and put all your infrastructure and service there, not looking at where do you need to be to service your customer. Uh, brand adoption. My grandfather put his name on the company. There's no way I'm going to change my name to a name that nobody. That's one of like knows. one of the members was saying to you. Yeah. Okay, not one of the members. All, all of the them. Members. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> These companies were 100 years old. I mean, a lot of them were like you know they were the pioneering brokerage company in their market, or they were 50 years old, born out of the the after the war, and they came in and they, they pride and legacy and history. Everybody knows, you know, so here's some of the arguments. Our signs are orange and green, and everyone loves them. You know, Mike, you know, they're highly recognized. Our, you know, my grandfather's name's on the door. You know, every different type of, of story. And so how do you why. countersell that? Well, you countersell it by saying that the... The industry is looking for a, a solution. They're looking for a company that can deliver consistent service delivery across the organization. And as a brand, 
that's what we need to do. So visualization is part of it, but what we need to do is commit to a certain light, a certain type of behavior, a certain level of ethics and, and uh, approach. So we built manuals and systems and processes and tools. So far beyond just the look, it was here's how you need to do business to be able to be to remain in the organization. From uh, the, the the brand part was the um, persistent, consistent selling. Uh, of the value, uh, what is so obvious that if 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 we all wear the same uniform across the organization and we all behave in a way and we all work together, the industry is going to recognize that and it's going to lift us all up. So your sign might be highly re- you know, well known as orange and green, but what does it mean? What does mm-hmm. it stand for? What is the value of that? No one knows. They just they recognize it. Great, but when they travel to another city, they don't see that. So what? Like the the other tipping point, we were able to get some of the members to change and then to get a a consortium to say everyone's got to change and the board to support that. And we gave a window of time and some were sort of on the fence. Do I jump in or do I jump out? And one jumped out and said, if I'm going to change my name to somebody else, I'm going to go to one that already exists and not help build another one. So they left and great. The company left, but all the agents came back from that company and popped open an NAI office and adopted the brand and were wildly successful with it. But what was fun, and uh, it it leads to a a number of fun stories, a firm in Chicago at at the time, which is now NAI Hiffman, still, uh, they said their clients, they were one one of the early big ones to change because they had a, in 2000, a a company split. So they had to re- uh, form themselves. So they had a, a new formation of their company, and they said, we're going to adopt the, the NAI brand, and overnight became NAI Hiffman. And they said the next week, their clients came back to them and said, I had no idea how big you were, because we were just in <laughs> Indianapolis, and we saw your signs. We were just in Louisville, and we saw your signs. We were just wherever it was, and we began to see that. And all of a sudden, those stories began to create a peer pressure within the organization mm. saying that you're either in or you're out. And so it wasn't me selling it anymore. It was these guys at each other's throats to get each get them to adopt. The, the holdouts, the ones that didn't want to mm. adopt. There were some heated conversations with people in corners of rooms and five guys around them saying, you know, we need you in. You've got to make this happen. And, and they did. Do you remember the day when it was, okay, guys, time to switch from your company name to NAI? Uh, I don't remember the, the day, but it was again. We wrote the, the plan well, in '97, like and okay. we uh, we sort of put that plan in, into effect for the 2000s. I think we, we've talked about NAI together with you in sort of three generations. Uh, uh, NAI one was that the '80s building that that platform. Uh, '90s was to to build the the dynamic deal flow and and the business, and uh, three was really building the company. And that was the the brand, the technology, and the globalization. So it all happened in, in the 2000s. So from, from that point, for why the strategy was built in 97, it took buy-in time and implementation, and it all began to tip and, and happen in that uh, early 2000 window. So now you're at a company called Real Next, and I'm seeing a lot of the same strategies, very strong brand. Uh, overwhelming value and talk about how you guys form this company because there's a parallel into your strategy with 
the way that you're phasing things. And there's a parallel between what you did with NAI where you effectively changed the rules, created something out of nothing. And I feel like you're doing that on the real estate technology side where you're changing the rules. Most real estate technologies are one solution. It's a client relationship manager or it's a financial analysis tool or it's a a transaction workflow. You've created all that in one company. Yeah, I think we, we did have a different vision and strategy, and we took a different approach than so far we, we've seen out there. And it is, uh, has some parallels to NAI. It also has some parallels to Argus and the, the company that Mark built before. But the, uh, the, the vision that we had was to consolidate the industry. We saw that the, the technology space was highly fragmented, that there were good tools out there, but they were expensive and they didn't talk to each other, so it became really expensive for someone to consume because I needed to buy one, two, three, four, five pieces. I needed to enter data here, enter it here, enter it there, and still not have uh, as uh, as good of uh, experience. I needed different people to contract with, different people for technical support. I, I had uh, time wasted and efficiencies lost. And so our, our strategy was to assemble a group of market-leading companies, with, uh, similar to NAI, assemble a group of market-leading companies, bring them together to work very cohesively and seamlessly across a, a platform and create a better solution. And not only to create a better solution, but to bring the price down to the point of overwhelming value. That was a fundamental part of our, our business plan and strategy was to say that we want to support the industry. Our tagline is the technology behind the deal. We want our clients to be as profitable as possible. We're not tra- – trying to be as uh, optimize our profit at the detriment of our customer. We're trying to be as successful as we can because our clients are as successful as they can. So this idea of, of creating overwhelming value to say that what we've built now, what we have under our box now is really five different solutions. If you were to go to the market and contract for all of those five solutions individually, you'd pay in the neighborhood of $1,000 a year, and we make that available for $100 a year. It is overwhelming value. And not only does it cost less, it saves you time because you enter data once and it proliferates throughout all of the workflow. So you save time and have greater efficiency and you're able to win business because you've got tools that no one else has to be able to more seamlessly generate business and execute that business. So this is you guys again fighting for the, the changing the law on the planned community zone change. Exactly. But within the real estate technology space. Uh, and putting everything into the palm of the broker's hand to give them a tool in their mobile app that allows them to have all of their information and control all of their information, to own all of their information and to use it to run their business more effectively. So what year did you start buying those initial four companies? So we were born in one day. So we, as I mentioned earlier, sold became a free agent in 2013, formed a partnership in uh, early 2000, uh, mid, it was actually July of 2013. So a partnership was formed. One of the uh, core objectives of the, par- of the partnership was to create a company that became real next. So we, I, I knew the companies that I thought would be ideal candidates for it. We had, because of where I sat, these were all vendors to me. And they were people that I had relationships with, knew, and they knew me. And I was able to call them up, uh, among several others, and invite them to uh, 
the dance, so to speak, to say, we've got this great idea. Here's what we want to do. Do you want to become part of it? And so we brought everyone together to Vegas, of course, and had a meeting where we talked about the strategy, vision, and plan in the fall of 2013. And on April 30 of 2014, we acquired Property Line, which is the leading property listing system here in Vegas and one of the pioneers in that market and one of the largest property listing uh, marketing systems in the country. REI Wise, which had a uh, great financial analytics tool for investment analysis, comparative lease analysis, uh, the ability to put together offering memorandums, proposals, and uh, set up those private and secure deal rooms that I talked about, and REA, which was the pioneer in that CRM marketplace, so a, a custom-designed application for commercial real estate industry. Each of those companies had something very interesting and great opportunities for us. So not only did they have great proven products, but our our strategy was to buy companies, not build products from the ground up, because what we've found and are are new then and are seeing more now is a lot of of people have great ideas and lots of great technology is built. But almost every solution, almost everyone – and you see, you see successes that come out, but almost everyone runs out of gas before they get to the finish line. So they're able to build a product, but they're not able to get to market. Because of money? Largely because of money. And it's not an easy industry to sell to. That's what some people miss. There, there are real estate companies, and everyone thinks, oh, real estate companies will gobble this up and use it. But most companies are made up of independent contractors who make all of their own decisions. So you need to have this ground attack sales capability to sell one by one by one by one by one until you get to a point where the company might say, oh, maybe there's a more efficient way to consume that if we consume it as a company. But the first play is often individually. So it's, there's a long time to get to critical mass and scale. And so what we bought out of the gates was not only great products, but we bought scale. REA had sold over 100. Scale meaning customers. Well, REA had paying built, customers? They had built, they had sold over 100,000 licenses to their technology. But their, the, the opportunity and the problem that we had, the opportunity there was that they were a desktop mm. technology in a world that was rapidly moving to the cloud. They were a perpetual license technology, which is how you used to sell. Meaning I software. buy it one time and that's it. Exactly. And the world that was moving to a SaaS model. So which is the good and the bad software was, as a service. So that's a monthly subscription model, which the industry in the world of technology has moved to. So we had this great legacy audience, but a cash flow model that wasn't optimized. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, we can great take REA, we can bring it to the cloud, we can transition it from uh, perpetual to SaaS, we can migrate all of those past legacy users onto the new model as they come up to the next generation of technology. Is it that easy? As easy as you're describing it now and it just flows off like like butter? Nothing is as easy (laughs) as fast as you'd want it to be, but that's what's happening. So let me sort of fast forward. So that that was the REA piece. The REI Wise piece was that they had a contract with the CCIM organization. So that's that, the that, society, that, the designation exactly. that you mentioned all, earlier. That's the, the leading investment brokers in the country all had access to that. So that gave us access to a 13,000 member organization by contract, which was great. And they had a great tool, and we thought we could make it even better. And then Property Line had a, a vast. Uh, subscription base they had over 100,000 subscribers through their system 
but their paying audience was only here in Nevada. So they hadn't monetized it beyond mm. the Nevada marketplace. We say, so ne- we saw we say Nevada. Nevada. <laughs> I'm from the east. I'm from back east, they say. <laughs> so, the, uh, so we saw this. Uh, we put these together, and we had market that we could begin to cross-sell pretty yeah, so our first first phase was saying, well, we've got these three products. We we added two more. We added a, a, a company called Buzz Target and another called Ten Eight uh, over uh, later in the year. Ten Eight is a tenant rep tour book and leasing app, and Buzz Target was an e marketing campaign management tool that complemented Property Line very well. So the first thing was, so let's say. Let's give you access to all of these things through a single sign-on. So let's just make it easier for you to consume multiple products that are sitting next to each other. And so that was sort of year one. Then year two was to let's do the, uh, the, uh, the, the lift that we need to begin to enhance the, the products and, and make them uh, more like one, so to harmonize the organizations and operations. And the year three was we needed to build the mobile app. We needed to build the CRM to the cloud, and we needed to replatform the, uh, the, the, the property line system to a new generation. And, and year four, which we're just finishing, that's our anniversary coming up in a week or so, Mazel tov. is now that we, we've sort of, I would say that we've realized the vision of that, what sounded like an easy pathway to mm-hmm. success, where we now have one product that has different services within it that can be consumed. One place enter data and data flows across the platform. One one place to to uh, to list, sell, and market and transact your your property, and it's a really good feeling. It looks you know consistent. It looks great. It's you know taken old architecture, made it modern. It's taken old look and feel and brought it forward. And <clears throat> now it all works harmoniously. Clearly, you have zero passion for what you're doing. No, no, no interest in it. The interesting thing is the parallel to. NAI, you did things in decades. <coughs> there was what what you had to accomplish in the 80s and then the 90s and then the 2000s. I'm getting old, Haim. Well, no, you're <laughs> running, out of, running you're, out of time now, here. Now with Realnext, you're doing it. Years, phase one is it's going to exactly. take a year, and phase exactly. two is a year, two, and year three. That's technology for you. Gotta move is, it, is it technology or is it <clears throat> that this is uh, your second act? You've taken all the experience that you've gained – and how you did it last time, and this time you're you're able to execute it much more quicker. Well, it's different. I, I, it, it's certainly a different model, different business, different different approach. Uh, but <clears throat> the uh, I think the world has changed, and everything is 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 enabled in real time so that you can do so much more, so much faster. People are able to evaluate, and make decisions, and uh, move forward with with those decisions very quickly and you know things that uh, might have taken 10 years to build in the past you can build in a year and uh, you know it's just the building blocks the, the fundamental utilities of of how you can make things create things how you can communicate and access the market certainly my access to the market my partner's access to the market enables us much more readily to have conversations with people like you and others across the the market that would listen to what we had to say and either buy in or or not and and make those decisions so we've been able to get in front of very large companies and very small companies individuals we just have relationships everywhere and they've they've come to see that we have a tremendous value proposition and they're enjoying it i also feel though that 
the reason you can move so quickly is because you guys had the vision to not build these things independently. And the model could have looked like year one, we're going to build the client relationship manager and sell it and get adoption. And then year two, we're going to add a listing site. And then year three, we're going to add the other, other, the financial analysis and all that other thing. Yeah, I think you, bought, st- you st- bought the companies with the customers there yeah. and you're able to move much faster than anybody if they're trying to replicate what you're doing. Yeah, I think our strategy is being, being proven right with that in that point where garnering that market share out of the gates, recognizing that the products needed improvement, and then rapidly working to, to build product solutions that would solve the needs. Because having a great customer base gives you great feedback. And one of the great values that we have is we've got a very loyal, dedicated uh, fan base of people that are happy to tell us all the things that we should do and could do and they want us to do so constant feedback constant iteration uh, you know when you're a lot of companies develop products in a vacuum they think they know everything and they just build and they think the market will come but when the market's telling you what to build you can actually this is your this is your faster. famous line if you want to herd cats you've got to give them tuna you know what the, the uh, real estate industry and others have been sort of uh, uh, always talked about as this com- concept of herding cats. It's hard to bring people together. Everyone's got their own motivation and, and interests. And my one of my famous lines was, you, you can herd cats by just putting out a, a bowl of tuna and they all flock to it. So what is it that they will flock to? What is it? What is the tuna for the industry? What are real estate brokers wired for? And why are they going to adopt your technology? And why did they adopt Realtrack? And why did they come together as NAI and work together there? It was all about providing a, a system and model for them to be as productive and effective as they could be, to provide the best service to their customer so they could be as profitable as they could be individually. So you've been in the commercial real estate industry at the highest levels for 30-some-odd years. What major predictions do you have to make about the future of commercial real estate? That's a great question. The um, A lot of industries have been disrupted. And there's this constant threat and fear and talk of disruption. And I, I think there's been the expectation that the commercial real estate industry will be disrupted. And what that means, I think, is different than what a lot of people think. So my, uh, my belief is that the, this industry does not go away. This industri- industry transforms in what it does and how it does it, but that the leading companies are now rapidly taking the realm, uh, taking the lead and, and integrating technology so that they become the disruptors. So the next generation of real estate will be this generation reborn using the tools. It's not going to be uh, Ubered or Amazon or somebody coming from outside saying we're going to do it a different way. The industry is going to control how it takes its next life. And that is going to be different than it is today. The expectation and demands of a commercial real estate professional are going to be much different than they are. It's not showing space. It's not information. Those things were the the expectation in the 80s where mm. my value was that I knew about property that no one else knew about. And I could 
through my relationships, which is always it's talked about being a relationship business, make a deal. I can sort of just make a deal. I'm a negotiator. I'm the guy that can make the deal. I think that the 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 real estate broker of the future is the one that can use the tools, use the efficiency, use the process, transact in the marketplace in a way that adds value to the customer through their advice, counsel, and support, whether it's negotiation skills, whether it's financial skills, whether it's uh, legal skills, whether it's just market nuance and understanding the the dynamics because it is a nuanced business and it's not as simple as you know a, a bid and an ask and let's make a deal there's lots of terms and conditions and there's lots of personalities and passion that gets involved not in this business in a transaction <laughs> as you know so those need to be managed so you need to have some ability to manage relationships manage people bring them together let them blow off steam let them blow up but bring them back together and so that piece you know those attributes of the advisor i mean it's just a higher level of advisor and professional than it's ever been sort of the, the guy that we talked about earlier that ford motor company spoke of existed that was, you know, in some ways, some big part of the industry. The, the, those those people don't have a place in the industry. There's no place for a lack of professionalism, no place for lack of quality, no place place for lack of brilliance. And and really, now, real estate brokers are really smart, sophisticated, uh, capable, uh, high caliber, high energy driven person today. And there's a big difference between the profile of who was showing up in a room of real estate professionals 30 years ago to where they are today and, and what they will be in another 30 years, but they'll still be there. They, they're the people that are are willing to make the change, the willing to re- realize that the world has changed and how business has done has changed will be leading the market. So it's going to be controlled by fewer people, but it's going to be um, a pretty exciting time for those that know how to navigate the course next time we do this we're going to add something to the intro along with entrepreneur and pioneer and branding expert jeff the futurist <laughs> don't know about that but uh, we'll see what happens did we'll your did your dad ever get to stick his thumb out at the ford motor guy did he ever cross paths with him again it, it's pretty funny uh, the um it, it never transpired but uh, a consultant for Ford came to us in 1990 and was evaluating should Ford it, buy a company like NAI. So it didn't. That didn't. It, it wasn't the guy, but it was the company saying that you know what, maybe we need to be in the real estate business. And you know, General Motors and you know Sears had been other big companies that. that it looked at how do they get into and should they be in the real estate business so they we had conversations with the, with them you know, which again never went anywhere but it was sort of a testimony it was a pretty interesting and proud moment to say how full circle it had gone from a company that said there's no reason for you to exist to uh, maybe we should be doing this that's a great story to end on perfect i appreciate this i was a lot of fun it's a lot of fun for me too thank you for doing this and thanks for coming on i always go into these things with specific takeaways I want to talk about. And I always come out with more. I think from this one, the biggest takeaway was how vision meets persistence and to drive things, to lead things as an entrepreneur. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen as quickly as you want it to happen. But if you stay true to your vision, you show up every day, you do the work, great things can happen. Absolutely.
So thank you, everyone, for listening. Like usual, we'd love to hear your takeaways. Make sure wherever you're listening to this, if you see it on Facebook or on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, leave a review, leave a comment. See you next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like this show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.